We'll be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. As always, I would encourage you to grab that Bible in front of you. If you don't have your own copy, there's a pew Bible there. I think it will help you to to be looking down at the Word as, as I'm attempting to explain it. We're in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We're in this section of of three parables that Jesus is telling in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees, where they are upset that Jesus is receiving sinners and tax collectors. And so they're grumbling about this, and Jesus then turns and tells a series of parables to, to, to address this grumbling. The first two we looked at last week, you know, a lost sheep and a lost coin, and that really highlighted for us the, the diligent search for that which is lost. You know, a shepherd going after a sheep, a lady looking for a coin that she's lost. We can understand the, the diligence it requires to find that which is lost. But, but then Jesus ended each of those parables by saying, and now there, there's this joy when something is found over a sinner who repents. And without our third parable this morning, we might be wondering, well, how does, how did a coin repent? How did a sheep repent? I don't, the, those stories are hard to capture what repentance really is. And so Jesus tells this third parable then to highlight for us the nature of repentance. So the main idea of, of the passage is this. God joyously receives the repentant person no matter how far they have strayed, but he rejects those who think that God owes them something. He joyously receives the repentant person, repentant sinner, no matter how far they have strayed, but he rejects those who think they are owed something by God. You see, Jesus is, again, responding to this, this grumbling, and, and he's making this point over and over that he, he's not just associating with people that are characterized by evil and wickedness and injustice just just for kicks. He's actually reconciling them to himself. He's reconciling repentant men and women to God. And if the Pharisees cared to hear the message of Jesus, they would not be grumbling. Instead, they would be rejoicing. So again, in the first two, a sheep wanders off, a coin is dropped, but in this Third parable, we see that being lost is is less of an accident and it's more a deliberate, intentional dishonoring of the Father. And so our first point this morning is found in those first few verses there, verses 11 through 16, wandering brings the consequences of sin. We get introduced to our, our main character there in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. So each of these parables begins by introducing a main character. And here we have a dad that has two kids. And again, the point of these parables is to highlight the attitudes and actions of God by saying, if a dad receives a sorrowful son, how much more does God receive sorrowful sinners? So in this this third parable, Although it seems like the sons are driving so much of the action, as we develop the parable, we need to keep in mind that it's actually the the man or the dad that is the main character. And we see that, you know, we see even in our own world, our own lives, that two kids in the same household can be completely different. And that's no different in this household that Jesus is speaking about. 
The older brother is steady. He's reliable. He's a hard worker. By all appearances, he's committed to the father's work and to the father's estate. The younger brother, on the other hand, is a mess. He is uh, stubborn. He is willful. He is ungodly. And he makes this request in verse 12 that is a slap in his father's face. It says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. You know, normally in, in this well, in our culture too, but in this culture, a son would receive his inheritance upon his father's death. So this request to give me what's coming to me before you die is such a dishonoring thing to say to a dad. It's as if he's saying, I don't want to wait that long. I don't want to wait for you to die. So give me what's coming to me. What he's doing is he's cashing in his sonship. He's saying, you know what, just give me what I have coming to me and I'll be out of your hair. I'll get out of this family. He's casting away this relationship. He's severing the relationship with the father. This is a public insult. This would not have been done in private. The son would list the property and everybody in town would be wondering, what's what's going on here? And for the purposes of this parable, the the father uh, uh, obliges. You know, the parable doesn't care to answer why the father does, but but he does. And so the son then apparently, he, he liquidates his inheritance, he liquidates the estate, and, and runs off, the text says in verse 13, to a far country. He severs the relationship with the father, runs as far as he can, and he indulges in this lifestyle where he just wastes all of his money in sinful living. You know, verse 13 there, it says he, he wasted it. He squandered his money with reckless living. We would say, you know, he he just threw it all away. He just wasted it. That word reckless there is translated debauchery in passages like Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery. So we, we see that this is reckless, sinful living. Later on, his older brother makes an accusation that he's just wasting this on sexual sin. It's probably true, you know. So, so the younger brother is the fool of Proverbs 29.3. It says, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders wealth. He squandered it. He's wasted it on the pleasures of the flesh. He's brought shame upon his father. We see then that the rebellious son, he's put himself in a, a really perilous position by taking what was owed to him severing his relationship with his family, and going and wasting all that he has. He's wasted all of his money. He has nothing to show for it. In this culture, family was really a sense of security where if you were in a desperate situation, you could always rely on family. Well, he doesn't have family. He has no one to lean on for support. He's walking the path of the wicked, and he's bearing the consequences of his Son. And then this severe famine arises, just as he's squandered it, just as he's wasted everything. And so now he's facing not only the consequences of his own sin, but things like famine happen in this broken and sinful world. And so he's facing his own destruction, and it's come upon him quickly. 
His downfall is fast approaching. He has very few options. So he hires himself out to a pig farmer. And this would have been unthinkable as Jesus addresses the Pharisees here for a Jewish person to hire himself out to a pig farmer because pigs uh, under the old covenant are unclean. Now we can praise God that that's no longer true in the new covenant. But a, a, a Pharisee would have been hearing this and thinking, how could this man go any lower? He's working for a pig farmer. Well, verse 16 tells us, how he can go lower. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The pigs are better off than this young man. He longs to eat what the pigs are eating. He has nothing. On top of that, the text says that he's, he's all alone. He's, he's isolated himself. He's ostracized himself from those who could help him. What a picture of what sin does to a person. What a picture of what sin does to a person. Right? We can notice a few things that we know theologically to be true about sin, and we, we can see them developed in this text. We see that sin dishonors God. Sin dishonors the Lord. In our parable, the son slaps his father in the face, metaphorically, by saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. He has no love for the Father. So he says, give me what's coming to me and I will be out of your hair. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. It dishonors God. It says to God, your authority stops here. You have no right. You have no claim over me. Your holiness is of no importance to me. Your commands are burdensome to me. I just want out from underneath your burden. Sin dishonors God. Sin separates from God. We see this in our, in our text by the, the son running away to a far country, to Gentile territory. He's, he's separate from the Father because of his rebellion. And it's true that sin alienates from the life of God. We, those outside of Christ walk in the darkness of their understanding, dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which they walk. Sin alienates a person from God who is a source of joy and life and every good gift. Sin can also bring about its own consequence of, of this isolation that this man is experiencing in our parable. Why? Because sin is inherently self-serving. So I alluded to 2 Corinthians 5.15 earlier that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. One of the reasons for which Christ died was to set us free from the slavery of sin, which is a slavery to selfishness. Sin inherently uses others for its own gain. It doesn't give itself away to love others. He severed his relationship with his family because of sin, and so it's no surprise that in this famine, he's alone. He's isolated. He's without hope. We see also that sin dehumanizes. Sin robs us of our original design and calling. Man is created in the image of God to reflect God's glory to one another, to image him. Psalm 8 says, originally man was crowned with glory and honor, but we know all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
So even though sin feels like it, with, with the flesh, sin feels like the most natural thing in the world. In reality, it's profoundly contrary to the way that you and I were designed to live by a good and righteous and holy God. We see also that sin never satisfies. Sin never satisfies. Far from satisfaction, sin leads to destruction. If you read the book of Proverbs, you see over and over that this path of wickedness, it leads to destruction and it can come upon a person quickly. Sin robs and enslaves. It promises joy that it can never deliver. It's a cruel master. And it enslaves and it brings, ultimately it brings death. You can imagine this young man leaving home with a bag of cash, thinking about how fun this is going to be, thinking about how much joy he's going to experience. And he ends up, in, in apparently a very short period of time, looking at a pig's trough and saying, boy, do I wish I had some of that. Of course, Jesus here, is, he's picturing the, the tax collectors and the sinners that he's, he's now received. He, they, they had wandered off into a far country. They had rejected God's law and God's rule over them. They had in, in, engaged in the passions of the flesh, living for the fleeting pleasures of sin, many of them experiencing the emptiness of this, this life, tasting then the bitterness of sin. You know, Jesus doesn't mince words about the past of those who he is now associating with. He isn't excusing their sin. He isn't explaining it away. He isn't calling for acceptance of any and all lifestyle because, hey, you know what? Just get over it. We're all, we're all created by God, so you live however you want. You live however you want. No, Jesus is not ashamed to highlight the offensiveness of sin, even the sin of those who he's now sharing a meal with. And he's not afraid to talk about the destructive consequences of sin. And you know, if the parable ended here, it, it would make sense. If you could just cut the parable off here, the son has dishonored the father. He has sinfully wasted all of his money. He is all alone. He can't make ends meet. He's longing for what pigs get to eat. And, and you know what? This could be a parable about the destructiveness of sin. And we might be tempted to join the Pharisees and say, you know what, you made, it, you made your bed, now lie in it. Or you're getting your comeuppance. Well, thankfully, the story doesn't actually end there. Point number two this morning, repentance brings the compassionate embrace of the Father. Look there in verse 17, you see the word but, there's, there's a contrast here, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, the son has a moment of clarity. He wakes up to the desperation and the consequences of his actions. He can see for the first time since he left home that his actions have put him in this dire situation. His rebellion against his father has put him in a terrible spot. You know, we talked about sin being a cruel master. When, when the younger son comes to himself, he realizes that his father is a good master. His father is a good father. He's a better master than this, this guy, what I've been living for, sin. He says to himself, you know, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? 
Man, those who are serving my Father, they have everything they need. You know, some have argued at this point that, you know, with the younger son, he just, he just wants out of the consequences of his sin. But I think if we pay attention to his plan, what he thinks in his mind, we get, we get a glimpse into his own thinking, I think we see a true change of heart. Notice what he intends, intends to do in, um, at the end of 17 through 19. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. The son says, I'll get up and I'll return. I'll go home. You know, in the Old Testament, this idea of returning, it was often the idea of repentance. You see the Lord pleading with Israel over and over, return to me, return to me. It's, it's repentance. And his plan starts with, he's going to freely acknowledge his sin. Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. You know, he avoids saying things like, sorry if I hurt you. This seems like genuine repentance where he's confessing what he has done. He makes no excuses for his attitudes or his actions. And he also, uh, another thing he does here is he admits that he has no right. He has no right to claim the benefits of a son. Remember, he gave up his sonship when he said, give me what's coming to me and I will leave. He doesn't come back and say, dad, I think you owe me a few more acres. You see that at the end of verse 19 where he says, you know what, my plan, I'm just going to try to go back. I'm just going to try to be a servant. Really, it's a hired hand. This type of servant would be the lowest of the low. This is not the type of servant that even lives in the household. And sort of, you know, the master of the house has some say and some investment in this type of servant. No, this is just a hired hand. He gets paid to do a little bit of work, enough to survive. This young man asserts that he has no rights. He knows that he's in no position to negotiate. He's willing to serve because he's recognized that anything's better. Anything's better than feeding these pigs and longing for what they have. So he knows, he knows also that his father doesn't have to receive him back. He knows that he's ultimately just throwing himself at the mercy of his father. This is his only hope, and he knows it. No bartering, no claims, just reliance on the father's mercy. Again, what a wonderful picture of repentance. We've been saying over and over in Luke that Jesus has been calling for a sense of humility, that no one will turn to the Lord without humility, that turning and repentance, I'm going to use those words uh, synonymously, it's built on the foundation of humility. It's seeing that, that, that your sin is actually dishonoring to the Lord. It's all those things we mentioned earlier. It is rebellion against God. It's letting go of any sense that we deserve to be counted righteous. It's letting go of any sense that, we, that, that God has indebted Himself to us and that we ought to come and barter with Him so that we can have a little bit better life, that He owes us this. It's to come home and say, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy and I'm throwing myself at your mercy. And here's what happens. 
Here's what happens when, when the repentant sinner, when the young son comes home, when he repents of his sin, the father runs. The father runs towards him. He shows compassion towards the humble. Look there at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father looks out and he sees his son coming in and moved by compassion, the text says, he sprints to his son. You know, some of the more wholesome videos on the internet are those uh, videos, you know, where some military personnel is returning home after a year in Iraq or Afghanistan. And sometimes they set up this elaborate sort of trick and, and film this, this reunion and So a dad might show up to his daughter's high school and you see that like normally a a teenager who's too too cool to show much emotion in school just absolutely loses it, sprints to her dad, jumps into her arms. Or you might see a a, a wife who sees her husband who she hasn't seen and in high heels and a dress she's trying to sprint to him. Well here... We have a father running out to meet his son. But there's a big difference between a daughter greeting a soldier who has been defending our country or a wife greeting her husband who has been defending our country and is worthy of honor. The father in our story is running towards the prodigal, the one who has dishonored him, the one who has rebelled against him. And the father has every right not to run and embrace him and to fall upon his neck. The father has every right to treat him as a rebel, as a glutton, as a drunkard. He could have had his son put to death for his transgressions according to the law. But he's moved by compassion upon seeing his son. You can imagine a son coming in with Nothing, no shoes, tattered clothes, emaciated. And the father sprints when he sees him. You know, when we find a lost child, what do we do? We give him a hug, and then we say, you better never do that again. But not this father. Not this father. He embraces him, and the text says he falls upon his neck. The ESV says he kisses him. Man, what a demonstration of the compassion and love of God towards prodigals. This is a relationship restored. This is reconciliation, and it's made possible by the love of God seen in the cross of Christ. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion towards those who fear him. Not too long ago, Jeff sent me a song by Andrew Peterson. He mentions the prodigal. He says, like the son who thought he'd gone beyond forgiveness, too ashamed to lift his head. But if he could lift his head, he would see his father running from a distance. What the son does is he goes to launch into his speech there in verse 21. But he isn't even able to finish. The father has no inclination, no intention of allowing the son to work for his place in the house. He doesn't even let him get to the part of, let me just be a hired servant. Look what he does there in verse 22. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. What does the father do? He doesn't say, you know what, you can earn your way up. Maybe one of these days you can be a a household servant. He says, dress him like a son. Get the formal attire out. Get Get the robe. Put the shoes on his feet. The ring mentioned there is is most likely a a family signet ring that would have the the seal of the family on it. In other words, full rights and privileges of sonship restored. Not based on what the son has done, but based on the grace and compassion and love of the father. And this parable is so good, I feel silly almost like, like saying, okay, this points to the love of God because it's the beauty's in the picture. But we might say this, you can count on this, that all who come to God in true and humble repentance are received joyfully by Him. All who are humble enough to admit their sin and turn from it and rely fully and finally on Christ are immediately given the status of son. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the question is, are you broken over your son? Is God revealing to you the depth of your rebellion against him? If he is, you must turn to God. You must turn to him. Knowing that this gospel that we preach week in and week out about Christ dying, it was the only means by which you might be reconciled back to God. In the cross, on the cross, Jesus taking in Himself the full brunt of our rebellion, the punishment that we deserve. You see, the Father doesn't punish the Son. In light of the rest of Scripture, we know because Jesus Christ was punished on our behalf, so that then what? That we might receive all the benefits that Jesus Christ has earned for us, like being treated perfectly righteous, as if you'd obeyed the law the way Christ has obeyed the law. It's only through Christ. It's only through Him. In coming to God through Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are reconciled to God. You are given eternal life. It's only in Christ that you are adopted into God's family. So part of, part of what's being told to us here is that no matter the mess you've made with your life, no matter the pieces that need to be picked up, you can be restored to God and justified, forgiven of your sins, brought into the family of God. You know, there may very well be things that you have to deal with in this world. There may be relationships that just cannot go back to the way they were because of the way that we've sinned. There may be trust that has been broken, that, that it, the trust sometimes has to be earned back in this, in this life. There may be even legal consequences for a person who comes to Christ and they've been living a life of a criminal. But when you come to Christ, you face these consequences and these these worldly realities as one who is counted perfectly righteous in the sight of God. 
There's a difference between consequences for sin and being counted righteous. Positionally, you are righteous in Christ, and you will be treated as such at the final judgments. Don't keep running. Why would you? Turn to Him today, and you will find, like the prodigal, that God runs out to meet the repentant. He runs after the repentant. He gives grace to the humble. We see that He, he, he not only that, but he, he delights in it. He celebrates He rejoices in the saving. Verses 23 through 24, they recall that that shared joy. Remember we talked about the communal joy. The shepherd comes home, calls the whole city together. Let's rejoice. I found what was lost. The woman calls her neighbors and her friends and says, hey, I lost this coin, but it's been found. Similarly, Similarly, in verses 23 through 24, The father says, bring the fattened calf, let's kill it, it's time to celebrate, it's time to rejoice because that which is lost is found, that which was dead is made alive. In other words, this calls for a steak dinner. This wasn't a typical meal in Jesus' day. You know, I've joked before, like I can't have a snack if it doesn't involve meat, right? That's That's not typical in this culture. This was only for the most special occasions, the most special celebrations, the kind of celebration a dad might throw when his lost son comes home, or the kind of celebration that God might throw when the dead are made alive. The repentance are embraced in the compassion of the Father and rejoiced over, and it only happens through Christ. You know, once again, we we might expect, oh, if the story ended here, that would be right. That would be great. A parable about the compassion and, and love of God. That's where really the other two stories sort of ended here. The loss is found, let's celebrate. The loss is found, let's celebrate. We might expect for the text to end again after the celebration. But this parable has some things that need to be highlighted, some things that need to be tied up. Remember uh, that we were introduced not just to one son in the beginning, we were introduced to two sons. And really, we don't do the parable justice. We don't do Luke 15 justice if we don't wrestle with verses 25 through 32 and the older brother. So how does the older brother respond? His brother's back. Well, verse 25 says, Now his older, older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. What Jesus is doing now in this parable, he's holding up a mirror to the Pharisees. He's, he, he's trying to, to help them to see themselves clearly, that they are out of step with God's heart towards the sinner. They are out of step in their grumbling and that Jesus would receive repentant sinners. You know, they, they think that maybe Jesus is calling them to rejoice in people's sin and, and Jesus is holding up the mirror, hoping that they will see, no, you need to be rejoicing in repentance, rejoicing in another person's repentance. And so he, he talks about this older son returning from a, a, a day's work in the field. He hears the sound of music and dancing. Now, I was saved in an independent, fundamental Baptist church. We didn't know what to do with this verse. But there's a party going on. 
And the older son is, is surprised. There was no party, there's no celebration, there's no feast on the calendar. So he calls a servant over in verse 26, and he asks him what this is all about. And it seems like to the servant, the party makes total sense. Look there in verse 27. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Why? Because he has received him back safe and sound. The servant understands why the party's going on. You might expect the brother to say, oh, that's, that's great. Let me go greet my brother. He doesn't see it that way, does he? Where you might expect joy, you find anger. And there's this unexpected reversal in the text where the older brother says, there's no way I'm going into that party. There's nowhere, no way I'm sharing a meal with, with a sinful brother. And so what you have is, is the older brothers outside the party. And remember, a lot of this stuff in Luke 14, 15 has been about this banquet that we get to share with the Lord. And Jesus is sharing a meal with sinners and tax collectors as a preview of this banquet that's coming. And the older brother says, there's no way I'm going to that party. There's no way I'm going to that banquet. So the, 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 the one you would expect to be on the inside is now on the outside. And, and the, the, the rebel in the center that you would expect to be excluded from the banquet is now enjoying the fattened calf. And the older brother cannot believe that the father is being generous instead of exercising wrath or discipline or correction or public shaming. He cannot believe this. And the father, consistent with his patience, what does he do? He notices that the son is outside. And he goes outside to the son and he begins to speak with him. But the son doesn't want to hear it. Right? He's much too angry to hear anything from his father. Notice that his complaints there that begin in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice. The anger of the older brothers directed towards the father. He refuses to address the father with respect, which is what you would expect in this culture. He begins with, look. You know, if one of your kids begins a statement to you or a complaint to you with, look here, that's a problem. Right? Same thing here. He refuses to address the father with respect. He has this attitude of, let, let me tell you what's going on here, Dad. Let me tell you how it is here. How is it for the older brother? He wants to be rewarded for his servitude. He's reminding his dad how good he's been. I've, I've been the good son, Dad. I've slaved for you. That's what he says in the text. I've, I've slaved for you. He seems to view his father as less of a father and more of a servant. The position that the young son longed for, I just want to be a servant. The older brother feels like it's burdensome. He wants to be rewarded. You, you, you didn't reward me with the party. He wants justice and, and not grace. You've killed the fattened calf, the, the cream of the crop, so to speak, and I didn't even get a goat. 
He is convinced that he is worthy and that he hasn't received all the blessings associated with his worthiness. What's he doing? He's charging his dad with unfairness. You've been unfair because you've killed a fattened calf for him and you haven't even given me a goat. And given all this on principle, I can't go into that banquet. I can't go into that party. I can't rejoice over my brother. Did you notice in the text he wouldn't even refer to him as his brother? What does he say? This son of yours, he came home. The older son is livid, filled with a sense of indignation and justice. And again, you might expect the father to respond in kind and say, let me tell you what's up. You might expect him to say, let me tell you how it is. But he's compassionate. He gently speaks with the older brother. This is the kind of father that not only runs to the rebel, but goes outside to entreat the self-righteous brother to enter in. Enter in. Look what the father says in verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. The older son says, I've slaved for you. And the father entreats him gently, calling him son. He assures him that he hasn't neglected him. The fattened calf, the goat, it's it's been yours. You had access to this all along. All that is mine is yours, the father says. He reminds the son that this, this is fitting, really it's, it's a stronger word than just like, this is acceptable. It's that this, is nece- this celebration is not just fitting, it's, it's necessary. This sort of joy is necessary. Questions about fairness, they're inappropriate right now. Families don't operate on a system of merit. You've earned this much, so I'm going to give you this much. He's squandered it, so I'm going to treat him this way. Families don't operate that way. And your brother, he says, he reminds him, he's your brother. Your brother is back. He was lost and is found. He was dead to me. Now he's alive. And, and it's, it's absolutely necessary that we rejoice. And he entreats him, the text says, to, to come in. But the older brother must enter the party on the father's terms. He must enter the banquet on the father's terms. While his younger brother had to repent of his dirtiness, the older brother needs to see the Pharisee, needs to see his own sense of self-righteousness. That he too needs the, the compassion of the father. That he too must humble himself, admit that he is unworthy, and enter in in humility. See, the Pharisees are exposed here by Jesus. They're not rejoicing over Jesus receiving sinners because they don't see their own need as well. Think about what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, Paul says, I am foremost, of whom I am foremost. You see, Paul, actually, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was righteous according to the law. He was zealous. But he sees himself as the chief of sinners. 
He sees himself as one who has rebelled against God and needed the sacrificial work of Christ to cover his sins. You see, the church of Christ is made up of those who have been shown this incredible grace. But until we see ourselves as those who are recipients of grace, and and I'm convinced we do, it's not rebuke, that sounds a little bit like rebuke. But until we see ourselves as those who were in desperate need of incredible grace, we won't rejoice in the salvation of others. We'll be closer to the Pharisees. But since we recognize our desperate need and, and the meeting of that need in Christ, we rejoice with the Father when the lost are found. Because we've been welcomed back as sons and daughters, we imitate the joy of our Father when He rejoices when others trust in Christ. And again, I don't, I don't know that we need, we need a, a huge push here. I don't know that we have many Jonas here that are looking out at the Ninevites and saying, I cannot believe the Lord saved 120,000 people. But it's good for us. It's good for us to be reminded that we rejoice when God rejoices. We rejoice like heaven when someone is found in Jesus Christ. All of this started, all of these parables started because the Pharisees were grumbling about Jesus sharing fellowship with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus completely rejects the premise that to receive sinners is to welcome their sin. To receive sinners is to approve their sins. These folks that Jesus is sharing a meal with are the ones who have come back from the far country. They're the ones who have come to their senses. Unlike the Pharisees, they have freely acknowledged their sin and their unworthiness, and they've thrown themselves at the mercy of God. So there's great joy to be found there. So after two places where you might expect the parable could end and it would make sense, It would have easily sort of wrapped up the story, put a bow on it. Now we're left with a sort of cliffhanger. That's how the story ends. The father's out there and he's entreated the son to come in. We're left to wonder, will the older brother come in? Will he share the joy of his father? For the Pharisees in the audience, the door is open for them to come if they would see themselves in the mirror that Jesus has just held up for them. Will they turn? The Pharisees are welcomed in if they would come in humble repentance. As a reader, we're left wondering, will they? You know, if this were a Lifetime original movie, we know how it would end. The older brother would say, you're right, Dad. And he'll come in and he'll embrace his brother. There'll be a little family gathering there, a little group hug. But if we read the rest of the New Testament, we we do know how this ends, don't we? We know that the Pharisees would, by and large, continue to reject Christ. They refuse to be a part of the family that does not operate on the merit system. And by the end, they join the chorus of their fellow religious leaders and fellow Israelites in Jerusalem, and they look at Jesus and they say, crucify Him, crucify Him. So how does the story end? It ends with the older brother picking up a stick and beating his dad. Because that's what they wanted to happen to Christ. And such is the animosity towards God of those who, quote, need no repentance. 
but for those who know they need compassion, for those who have recognized that they need grace, for those who have thrown themselves at the mercy of God, relying only on Jesus Christ, that that death that Christ, Christ bore on that cross, it becomes not only the very ground of our salvation, but the very source of much rejoicing. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that we are completely and utterly undeserving. Thank you for making a way through Jesus Christ based solely on your work, based solely on your own initiative. There's nothing in us that could have redeemed ourselves. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your compassion, your nature, your character. Lord, we pray that we would live this week in light of it, that we would rejoice, that we would be cognizant of the goal to seek and to save the lost as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would be satisfied, not only in our salvation, but in the salvation of others. In Jesus' name, amen.